Hello and welcome to The Church is True Faith Crisis and Reconstruction podcast series. I'm Rob Terry and this is our third episode. Today's episode is Book of Mormon Evidence. We will be doing three episodes on the Book of Mormon, four including the the word print study, which is kind of an extra, but three main episodes. This one on Book of Mormon Evidence that will cover horses, steel, Book of Mormon DNA, this kind of Book of Mormon evidence. Next week will be Book of Mormon content, analyzing the the content of the Book of Mormon, primarily the theological content. And then the third episode on the Book of Mormon will be on Book of Mormon translation, and especially how it was translated and dictated and, and came forth and the gold plates and all that. So we've gotten the non-controversial episodes out of the way, and now we're jumping right into the fire. I approach this with trepidation. I love the Book of Mormon so much, and I have so much respect for the the good LDS scholars and defenders that make up the Book of Mormon Central team and, and Fair Mormon, and I consider them my friends, and I know that they disagree with me on this topic, but I'm going to share how I view this topic and the information, how I processed it, and how it affected my faith crisis and shifted my paradigm, and then how I've reconstructed my, my view of the Book of Mormon in, into something that I believe it's just as true and beautiful as I ever have, and I, I honor it as LDS scripture. Okay, so let's go. When the Book of Mormon was first received by the LDS community and the external non-LDS community, and including Joseph Smith himself, it was viewed as the origination story for Native Americans, meaning that the American continent was empty before the Book of Mormon people came, and, and the Book of Mormon explains how the the American continent became populated and and eventually grew into the population of Native Americans that the people of the 19th century knew. And given those assumptions, you would expect to find evidence related to, to that. And that would be related to cultural evidence, food, customs, linguistic evidence. You would expect to find Near Eastern impacts on, on these different things. And then the big one is you would expect to find Near Eastern DNA when you tested Native Americans. And modern scholarship and science shows that this is not possible. We don't, we don't find these evidences in linguistics, in the culture, and the big one is DNA. We don't find Near Eastern DNA in Native Americans the way we would expect to, given those assumptions in the simplistic version of the of the Book of Mormon that we just introduced. Scientists now can prove that Native Americans came about because Asians came across the Bering Strait 15,000 years ago, came through down from Alaska down into from North America down into South America. They populated the entire continent, and that we, we see all kinds of different cultures and languages across these different tribes of Native Americans through up and down of South and North America. So LDS informed scholars have come up with a couple different theories to explain this, and they do a pretty good job of explaining this. And there's a criticism of these theories that the Book of Mormon is proven false, and now we have to react to that. And so we think, oh boy, wh what crazy theory can we come up with now? Okay, here's a couple of theories that, that might explain it. And I don't think that's fair. These theories have been are, are very old and have been around 
barely starting after the Book of Mormon was introduced. And and really, it doesn't matter. Truth is truth. And if we didn't understand the Book of Mormon, you know, the, the, the actual reality of the Book of Mormon at the beginning, and it took a while to figure that out, that's fine. So I don't agree with that criticism. I don't think it's fair. But here are the two main theories that, that apologists use to resolve these facts. Okay, so first is limited geography theory. At first, we believed that the Book of Mormon took place on the entire continent of the Americas, and we called that hem the hemispheric model. But the LGT, limited geography theory, shows that if you break down the distances and, and look at the detail of the text of the Book of Mormon, it really seems to be only isolated to a small area. And the key data point on this is the distance between Nephi to Zarahemla, which is which was 21 days in the Book of Mormon. And so scholars estimate 250 miles, okay, for this 21-day trip. And then they, they take that and then they use that as a base and map out the other cities in relation to how the Book of Mormon tells us. And they, they see that the Book of Mormon takes place in a relatively small area, which is about the size of Utah. And then they've looked at ancient American cultures and tried to identify where there might be a river that matches the River Sidon and where there's the East and West Sea and the Narrow Neck and, and these different descriptions. And they've done a pretty good job of identifying the southern tip of Mexico and Guatemala as where the Book of Mormon lands took place. And there are other models for Book of Mormon geography, but I really think this is the only one that makes any sense because you need a large population to support the Book of Mormon, and you need a somewhat advanced civilization. And really, the only thing that fits is the, is the Mayans. And so, the Mayans lived in the same area that we have identified. And so, the Heartland model, we'll talk about that in a minute, and other different models, I don't think really work. So, we're going to focus on the LGT in the southern Mexico. And then the second theory that that makes sense of this is the mixing populations theory. And that is that we have four different groups, the Jaredites, the Mulekites, the Lamanites, and the Nephites. And we picture, in the mixing populations theory, we picture each of these groups mixing immediately, intermarrying immediately with native populations such that their DNA is completely dissolved over time. So, after the second generation's got 50% Near Eastern DNA, and then the third generation's got 25%, and then down to one-eighth, down to one-sixteenth, one-thirty-second. And so pretty soon, the Near Eastern DNA is completely dissolved into this larger population, and that would make sense that we don't find their DNA today. Hugo Perego is a scholar that's done a lot of work on this and analyzed it, and he consulted with the church in producing the essay on Book of Mormon and DNA and Book of Mormon origins that was published in 2014. And the church is completely on board with this understanding. We changed that heading on the title page that I think was originally written by Bruce R. McConkie in 1981, that the Lamanites are the principal ancestors for the Native Americans today. We changed that heading to the Lamanites are among the ancestors for existing Native Americans today. And then in the church essay in 2014, they, we made it very clear the church officially recognizes modern science in terms of recognizing that, that Native Americans came across 15,000 years ago 
and that the Book of Mormon does not explain the origins of the Native Americans, but that the Book of Mormon people must have mixed with this population somehow because they were already an existing population. And that's good that we're approving modern science and the church has a very scholarly and, and scientific view of this now, which is a good thing. Okay, so I've got a few issues with these theories. The first one is that I'm not totally sure. I mean, Ugo Perego obviously knows a lot more than me than about DNA science. I know I know how to do SQL queries. I don't know how to do DNA science. And so I'm going to have to trust Ugo Perego. But I read what Ugo Perego says, and I read what Simon Southerton, he's an ex-Mormon who also knows a lot about DNA science. And they they kind of go back and forth, and I'm not totally sure. I'd like to have them sit down and kind of have a debate about this, because I wonder if we make assumptions. Let's say there was 30 Lehites that came over with Lehi and Nephi, and if they were absorbed into a population of 100,000, would we expect to see their DNA? What if they're absorbed into a population of 20,000? Or what if 30 people come over and, and they go a couple generations and turn into, you know, a hundred people and then they absorb into a population of 200,000, you know, would we expect to see that DNA? I'd like to see, I'd like to see more discussion on that. And then also I'm interested for the future because I think DNA science is getting better and better and more and more precise. So I think fast forward 10, 20, 30 years, I think, I think we might really nail down this once and for all, but I don't know. We'll see. For now, it's very acceptable for me to take Ugo Perego's take on this because I trust him and he's a smart guy. Okay, so here are my issues with the, the with the LGT, with the geography-related apologetics on this. The whole thing rests largely on one data point, as far as I can tell, and that's the dist distance between Nephi and Zarahemla. We seem to dismiss so much in the Book of Mormon from a literal standpoint, and we're going to get into this when we talk about more anachronisms. We have two more theories, the imperfect narrator theory, meaning that Nephi and Moroni are writing this, but they're human and they're, they're making their own humanistic observations, and they might even be exaggerating to make points. And so we can't take them literally sometimes. And then also loose translation theories are that Joseph Smith may be kind of taking words or, or taking ideas and putting them into his own words and putting, putting them into something his 19th century audience would understand better. And so he's changing things up. These are our answers whenever we come across something difficult to explain anachronistic-wise. But yet we hold so tight to the distances, it doesn't feel consistent how we're applying that. Next on the geography, we've got some issues. We have the East Sea and the West Sea, and we usually interpret that as the Pacific Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean, which, which is also done in the LGT theory, except if you look at the map, and I'll put this in the, in the show notes, the link on my website, area of Southern Mexico, it twists. And so the Atlantic Ocean or Sea East is going to be actually almost due north. And so east and west are now due north and south. And so when they're going into the land southward or land northward, they're going actually east or west. The other thing is the narrow neck doesn't seem like a narrow neck so much because it's almost like a square or like a rectangle. If you look at the map, 
that uh, Book of Mormon Central might produce. And so the narrow neck just doesn't quite make sense when you look at it. Another thing is there's two Camorras. Obviously, Joseph Smith's Hill Camorra doesn't fit with this Book of Mormon land. So they have a Hill Camorra where the events in the Book of Mormon refer to Camorra, which is down there in Mexico. And then, of course, we have a second Camorra where Joseph got the plates. And the Heartlanders really take issue with this because they they want to take, they're a little bit more fundamentalistic and anti-science, so they're not bound to trying to map it to actual reality of the physical world. And they want to just take Joseph's words or take the text of the Book of Mormon. And Joseph, he would point out to different places and say, this is Lamanite land, this is Jaredite land, and here's Zelf, and he's a Lamanite warrior in, in Illinois. This is where he's buried. And so Heartlanders are taking this very literally and coming up with the their theory that the Book of Mormon took place in the, in the heartland of America. And their view might be more textually accurate, but it's not going to work at all in terms of fitting it into a material scientific world. And they take a very fundamentalistic anti-science view. And so I'm not going to take their theories very seriously or respond to them very much in, in this episode. Another issue is the Jaredites and Mulekites never meet. And they overlapped, we assume, 50 or 100 years or so. They're really close together, and they're pretty large societies. The Jaredites in Ether 15-2 had 2 million people slain in the final battle. And so they're a huge civilization, and they're, they're not very far from the Mulekites, but yet they never, they never cross paths. That's, that's one issue. In the hemispheric model, when they're more spread out, it makes more sense. Helaman 3 talks about a people that traveled exceedingly great distance northward up to great many lakes. And that's probably considered like the Great Lakes in North America by a lot of uh, receivers of the Book of Mormon. And they became populous and covered the whole area from sea west to sea east. But yet in the LGT, they're not going an exceedingly great distance. It's, I mean, that's relative, right? So, But they're not going very far. And then the other issue is Haggith built a ship and sailed out of the the West Sea to go northward to give supplies to these people. And then he comes back and then they go again and he disappears the second time. But that whole thing just for me doesn't make sense at all given the LGT and their map. So sorry if this is a little slow for some of you. This is, this stuff is really exciting to me. I, I I'm very interested in it. And I think it's critical for an understanding of the Book of Mormon and to understand the the way that the informed scholars and, and defenders are defending Book of Mormon historicity. But future episodes are going to get more interesting, I think, if, if you're not totally into this. So bear with us. Be patient. I dig this Book of Mormon stuff. I love the Book of Mormon. I spent dozens of hours just analyzing Book of Mormon geography, and I, I love this stuff. So... I kind of think that the original author, who I believe is Joseph Smith, roughed out the Book of Mormon, and I think he probably had some information on ancient America. And my little theory, and I could be totally wrong, is that maybe he saw the, the Incans in South America and the Mayans in Central America and the Pueblo Society 
in Southwest United States and then the Hopewell Indians or the, or the Native American tribes that were in North America that the U.S. settlers interacted with, the mound builders. And he kind of roughed out this whole story to cover them all is what my theory is. And that's the Lehites landed in South America, maybe down in Incan territory, and that's the Lamanite lands. And then they came up north into Central America where you have Zarahemla and Bountiful, and that's described as a dense jungle-like wilderness in, in the Book of Mormon, and that adequately describes Central America. And that's where you have the narrow neck, which visually makes sense to be Panama Canal or maybe the Isthmus of Tehuantepec. If you look at old maps from like Joseph Smith's day, it might be unclear which is the more likely narrow neck between the Panama and Tehuantepec. And Tehuantepec makes a little bit more sense because just north of that is the land desolation. And the land desolation was where the Jaredites lived. And it was described as the, by the Nephites as being barren and lacking timber. And they had to build cement houses. And so that might have been like the Pueblo communities, maybe. And then you go further up. And, and then at the very north is where you have the waters of Ripoliancum, which I think are the meant to be the Great Lakes. And, and of course, the Hill Camorra, where Joseph Smith lives. So I think there's kind of a map that a 19th century author is following as he's roughing this out, is my opinion. Okay, and the next one that I disagree with is this mixing populations theory. And this is where I just rage about this theory. And I'm, I'm laughing and I'm laughing at myself. I'm doing this kind of self-deprecating because I just can't get over this mixing populations. I hated it when I first heard it. I still hate it. The more I hear about it, I just never can make peace with this mixing populations. I just don't think it's textual at all. Even though I don't believe the Book of Mormon is historical, I have extreme respect for the text of the Book of Mormon. I take it as scripture, and I don't like people messing with the text of the Book of Mormon to fit what I think are their pet theories. I love the Book of Mormon Central guys, and I know we, we've had some conflict over this, and forgive me, but so I'm, I'm being overly dramatic here, but yes, I just rage over the mixing populations. I don't think there's any whatsoever, any support for it in the text. First of all, both the Nephites and as Grant Hardy showed in his great book, Understanding the Book of Mormon, the Lamanites also had respect for the law of Moses and kept the law of Moses, at least at first. And so I don't see them immediately marrying people outside the covenant. I think that would have been a big deal to them not to do. Next point, in Second Nephi 1.8 in Lehi's vision, and behold, it is wisdom that this land should be kept as yet from the knowledge of other nations. For behold, many nations would overrun the land, that there would be no place for an inheritance. Lehi is talking about the, this great land that they were, that they came to. And he's, he's talking about America's past and America's future. And he's foreseeing Columbus and the Gentile nations of the, of Europe coming into America and so forth. And, he seems to be clear to say that this land was protected so that no nations would overrun it, that it would be an inheritance for him. And then when Nephi comes in First Nephi 18, verse 23 to 25, it appears empty and it appears prepared for them, just like Lehi is saying. 
In verse 23, Nephi, And it came to pass that after we had sailed for the space of many days, we did arrive at the promised land, and we went forth upon the land, and did pitch our tents, and we did call it the promised land. And it came to pass that we did begin to till the earth, and we began to plant seeds. Yea, we did plant, yea, did we, we did put all our seeds into the earth, which we had brought from the land of Jerusalem. And it came to pass that they did grow exceedingly, wherefore we were blessed in abundance. And it came to pass that we did find upon the land of promise as we journeyed in the wilderness that there were beasts in the forest of every kind, both the cow and the ox and the ass and the horse and the goat and the wild goat, and all manner of wild animals which were for the use of men. And we did find all manner of ore, both of gold and of silver and of copper. Here they have this land given to them. It appears empty. He's describing everything he sees, and it's all these wonderful natural resources and animals and their crops. The seeds they brought with them from Jerusalem are growing and everything's perfect, no mention of anyone else, and no mention of anyone else at any point in any text of the whole entire 500-page of Book of Mormon. There's this interesting skin color explanation, and we don't want there to be racism in the Book of Mormon, and the church essay on the priesthood ban clearly disavows all theories and all scriptural interpretations where we assume that God is cursing anyone with dark skin. Dark skin is not a curse. God would not curse anyone with dark skin. And that covers the Bible with the curse of Cain, and it covers the Book of Mormon with the curse of the Lamanites. So regardless of whether you think the Book of Mormon is historical or not, the church has made it very clear that we're we've misinterpreted this this meeting in the Book of Mormon with skin color and the Lamanites. So a new interesting theory that I've heard is that Nephi might have misunderstood the Laman, the Lamanites' dark skin color because they were intermarrying with the Native Americans who might have had darker skin, and therefore their their children and grandchildren had darker skin. And so Nephi, Nephi is just assuming that this is some sort of curse because of their wickedness. That's a very interesting theory. But then I don't think it resolves the DNA issues because the Lamanite and Nephite populations are mixing a lot. You have mass conversions of of Lamanites to Nephites. You have mass uh, deconversions of dissenters going from Nephites to Lamanites, tens of thousands at a time. And then when Christ comes, there's 200 years of unity where where they're all together, mixing all together, and then they go separate again. And so I don't think you can just say, well, the Lamanites mixed and the Nephites didn't, and but then the Nephites died, and that's why we don't have their DNA. I don't think that adequately accounts for the lack of DNA. You have to go with a mixing population of, of both. And then add to that, you have all through the text of the Book of Mormon, people on both sides of the fence, Nephites and Lamanites, referring to their ancestors referring to themselves as direct descendants of Nephi, direct descendants of Mulek, direct descendants of Laman, Lamanites. We have a Lamanite king named Laman that's 500 years into the story. And then we have Lamoni and his father identifying themselves as descendants of Laman and talking about Father Lehi. And they're king over a system of cities that's like a, a dozen different cities, a huge population. How are we to understand that this minority group that just kind of slipped into this larger population is now just kind of ruling. I mean, they're the kings and they're just dominating the story. It doesn't feel textual to me. Okay, now let's move into 
anachronisms. And this is where most people spend a lot of their time talking about Book of Mormon, historicity. And I don't think this is really as big of a deal because really once you define these theories of like LGT and mixing populations and loose translation, really any anachronism you can get around. And I'm not saying that facetiously. I mean, it, you really can. If you subscribe to those theories, and I'm not saying they're totally ridiculous theories. I don't agree with them. They're intellectual theories that people with PhDs and, and intellectual people that I think are honest and, and very thoughtful about their approach to the Book of Mormon believe these theories. And we could go through one by one, and the answer is just, you know, loose translation, imperfect narrator, loose translation, loose translation. So as we list these out, I think the, the more important way to look at this is whether or not it fits in with kind of a loose translation or imperfect narrator uh, explanation. The first one, metalworking. So Nephi, when he's told to build the boat, he asks to find where is the ore. And and he he seems to already have the technology to make the bellows and to blow the fire and to create the tools once he has the ore. That doesn't seem like a supernatural or or miraculous experience. The miracle here is finding the ore. And so this feels like a technology that's just kind of a naturalistic, humanistic technology that they have and they take to America. And then in 2 Nephi 5, once they're in America, Nephi says that he did teach his people to build buildings and to work in all manner of wood and of iron and of copper and of brass and of steel and of gold and of silver and of precious ores which were in great abundance. And then again, several hundred years later, again in Jeremiah 1, they've multiplied exceedingly at this point, spread upon the face of the land. They're into fine workmanship of wood and buildings and machinery, also in iron and copper and brass and steel, and making all manners of tools of every kind to till the ground and weapons of war, yea, the sharp pointed arrow and the quiver and the dart and the javelin and all preparations for war. Seems like they're talking about steel and metallic tools and arrows and javelins and so forth. Apologists might say that there's a break here and they're talking about they're good in machinery and steel making and metal working and then they're transitioning and then they're also good at making tools and also good at making weapons of war which are not uh, related to the metal working. That's not how I read it. But we know that in Mesoamerica and ancient America, they didn't have this kind of technology. And I think the, the best apologetic explanation is just to say, well, Joseph is making a humanistic translation, and that's not what the ancient American author meant. They, they didn't mean steel and brass. Then also the Jaredites, it's even more anachronistic for the Jaredites because they're even more ancient. But in Ether 7, they're making swords out of steel. And in Ether 10, they did make gold and silver and iron and brass and all manner of metals. They did dig it out of the earth, wherefore they did cast up mighty heaps of earth to get ore of gold, of silver, and of iron, and of copper. They did all manner of fine work. Next is horse and chariots. Now, the apologetic explanation on this, Mesoamericans and ancient Americans did not have horses. Now, horses, I believe were actually evolved in the Americas and came across the Bering Strait the opposite way of, as humans did into the old world from the new world. But 
that they died out and then horses were reintroduced in the post-Columbian world from Europe. And it's possible, I guess now new evidence, it's possible that horses might not have died out completely until possibly intersecting with Book of Mormon times, but it, it's doubtful. And, and if they did, they weren't domesticated. They weren't used as horses are today in terms of riding them and using them as, as beasts of burden. And then chariots. Mesoamericans and ancient Americans did not have wheel technology. And that was the big deal. You know, we, we talk about the wheel as a big invention in, in human civilization to do a lot of agricultural work and other technologies. And ancient America did not have this technology. And I think the, the best defense the, for the informed defenders on this is to say, well, what is a horse? And, and maybe it's some other word that Joseph Smith didn't know. And that he's just uh, putting in horse as like the closest thing that his 19th century audience will recognize. And a couple theories are it could be a tapir or a deer, and maybe the chariots is something else also. They advise us to look at the text and really see what it's doing before we determine if it's truly anachronistic or if it's possible it could be some other animal or something described, which Joseph Smith is just assuming in a loose translation. But I think it's perfectly describing horses and chariots. In Alma 18, Ammon was preparing his horses and his chariots for King Lamoni. And this is in the context of Lamoni needing to travel to his father's city for a big feast. Then in 35.3, and they had taken their horses and their chariots and their cattle and all their flocks and their herds and their grain and all their substance and did march forth by thousands and by tens of thousands. So horses and chariots are listed along with all their other property and things that they own that are important for them as they move and travel so horses are something that they own and something that they're going to travel with. That doesn't describe a tapir or a deer to me at all. And since it's together, horses and chariots always, it seems like they're used together. So for me, that's spot on exactly how we would assume a horse and chariot is. Then we have other domesticated animals. In Mesoamerica, they had dogs and turkeys were the only domesticated animals as far as I understand. And the Book of Mormon identifies cattle, goats, swine, and oxen. Again, I think the apologetic explanation is that some other sort of animal that Joseph Smith thought his audience might not recognize, and so he's changing it. But I think we're talking about domesticated animals the way that they talk about these animals, and so it doesn't leave us a lot of choices. Another issue is coins in Alma 11. It's talking about a complicated monetary system, and it appears that they're talking about coins. It says pieces of gold and silver, but informed defenders say that this is not referring to coins. It's referring to something else. Not a big deal, but that's just one more data point. Domesticated crops. Mesoamerican domesticated crops were maize, squash, tomatoes, beans, chocolate, that, those things. In the Book of Mormon, they had corn, wheat, and barley. So corn is kind of a bullseye, especially that it's mentioned first, usually corn, wheat, and barley. There's an issue with that word corn not referring to maize originally, but I don't think that's a big deal at all. But I do think it's a big deal that it's referring to wheat and barley as domesticated crops when they didn't have those in Mesoamerica. And another apologetic argument might be that we don't know 
everything about Mesoamerica and we're constantly finding things. But that argument doesn't feel super compelling to me because the culture that is described in the Book of Mormon seems to be drastically different than the culture that we find in ancient Mesoamerica. So even if we're constantly finding new things, it just feels like there's too big of a bridge to gap here. Another one is elephants. There are no elephants in the ancient America. And that brings me to a point that I think is a significant pushback to these apologetics. And that's that in Ether 919, it says, and they also had horses and asses, and there were elephants and kirlums and cumums, all of which were useful unto man, dot, dot, dot. And so we have elephants and kirlums. So elephants don't exist in ancient America. So the standard apologetic response is, well, he's, he's seen something else that either he doesn't know or his 19th century audience wouldn't know, so he's changing it. But then we get Kirlams, and he is saying that explicitly, which is an animal that we don't know. And Royal Skousen tells us, and we'll go over this in a future episode, that there were times, especially place names, when Joseph would spell out, he would see in the seer stone uh, proper, na proper nouns that he would not know and spell them out for Oliver. And so we assume that he's spelling out Kirlam here. And so why wouldn't he spell out the whatever animal it was that was really the elephant that he took it and overrode that with elephant? That's a good question. I don't know. There's another example of him doing that when he lists out the domesticated crops and he does the corn, wheat, barley, and then he lists noose and shum, which we wouldn't have known about, but he... He lists them, and same kind of thing as Kirlam. Another issue is that in addition to like these anachronisms, we don't have any positive evidence in terms of identifying actual things from Mesoamerica that tie to Book of Mormon. And so if the Nephites are writing about the Lamanites, why wouldn't the Lamanites be writing about the Nephites? The Lamanites are part of this huge culture of the Mayans, and based on the population sizes, they must have been an extremely significant aspect of, of the Mayan culture. And so why do none of their writings refer back to the Nephites if all of the Nephites' writings is referring to Lamanites? We don't see any evidence of these huge battle scenes or, or other things. And that's, that's okay because we don't always find evidence from battle scenes from history. But one thing that I think is a pushback is that the Nephites go into the, the abandoned Jaredite lands and they call it desolation and they, it's covered with bones and covered with artifacts and, and they're everywhere. And this is several hundred years later and they just talk about how it's just full of bones and artifacts. And so if they are finding this several hundred years later, I don't know why we wouldn't today find maybe some of this evidence still. Okay, switching gears. Next issue is the concept of ancient metal plates. So in the Book of Mormon, we have six sets of metal plates identified. The brass plates, the small and large plates of Nephi, plates of Ether, plates of Zenith, and plates of Mormon. Each of these, as far as my understanding, far surpasses the, the scope of any ancient plates found in any ancient civilizations. In Israelite and Near East history, Parchment and papyrus rolled up in scrolls were the primary method of writing and storing writing. Metal plates did 
exist. That was a thing, but it was very uncommon. And there are no examples of ancient metal plate systems in writing systems in Mesoamerica. So informed defenders use a few precedents of these ancient metal plates to show that this is possible. Uh, let's go through a few of these. So Purgy tablets that date to about 500 BC found in modern day Italy, about eight inches by four inches. So about the same size as the gold plates, but these were only three plates and a total of just a few paragraphs of text. Second one found in modern day Bulgaria dating back to 600 BC is commonly used as a comparable because it's a collection of several plates bound together in rings. So just like the Book of Mormon is gold plates are described. But the problem here is that the plates are just two inches by two inches. And there are just six plates. And it's primarily images with a little bit of text. So it doesn't feel like a good comparable to the Book of Mormon to me. Another one in ancient Persia, there was two gold plates and one silver plate found together. But again, it's just containing a few paragraphs of text. And then another one that's used a lot because it is from ancient Israel, dates to about 600 BC, which is right on the money so far. And it included some scripture on it. This is good. But again, these are very small. It's basically amulets, which is kind of like a necklace, a decorative thing. And they're two inch by one inch silver plates the scriptures that are said to be on it are just a small phrase from Deuteronomy. So nothing in my mind, nothing that's even close to the scope and magnitude of these six sets of plates identified in the Book of Mormon. Now let's talk about the brass plates. The brass plates contained the five books of Moses, a record of the Jews to the reign of Zedekiah, which I believe would be Joshua Judges, First and Second Samuel. It also contained Isaiah, Jeremiah, and then other prophets' writings that we don't have in the Old Testament, like Zenic and Zenus. Then also a genealogy of Lehi's family. So this would be a huge book. I mean, almost the entire Old Testament on brass plates. So the brass plates are kind of mind-blowing to me. They would be by far the biggest discovery in archaeological history uh, for, for three reasons. One is just the fact that the Bible was all together that early, 600 BC, and all together like that in one codex format would be really implausible. Then the second factor, of course, would just be that they're on ancient metal plates. So first is just that they're all together at all. Second, that they're on metal plates, because even if we had one full chapter of any of these books on metal plates, it would be a huge discovery. And to think that we had all of those, just extremely implausible. And then the third one is that it's in Reformed Egyptian. And I think a minority of LDS apologists view the brass plates as not being in Reformed Egyptian and just being in Hebrew. But there's a passage in Mosiah that's talking about the brass plates. And I think it's clear that it's saying that they're in Reformed Egyptian, the same writing that they were that they were using to write on the gold plates. And it doesn't make sense to me that it would be different writing. It seems like they would carry on that tradition of what they had in the brass plates because it fits the whole entire logic of why they needed the brass plates and why it was important to do this writing. 
So to wrap this up, let's go to Reformed Egyptian next. So critics have made a lot of fun of the Book of Mormon related to this Reformed Egyptian. Like, there's no such thing as Reformed Egyptian, haha. But I think that's wrong. I think Reformed Egyptian, there's there's demotic and there's other forms of Egyptian that describe Egyptian in a way that you could call it Reformed Egyptian, I think. That's sound. Hebrews actually wrote in Demotic, and they, they wrote their Hebrew or uh, Aramaic language using Demotic symbols, Reformed Egyptian symbols. So that's kind of a bullseye. That, that's right on, I believe. But where I think is a big problem is that Moroni says that the reason they're writing in Reformed Egyptian is to save space on the plates. And that was an idea in Joseph Smith's day that Egyptian was a very efficient language. And you even see it in the KEP, Kirtland Egyptian papers, that it appears that Joseph and his team, W.W. W. Phelps and, and others that were analyzing the, the Book of Abraham and, and coming up with that translation, had an idea that Egyptian was covering more English text than it should be. So they would write down, and we'll cover this in our Book of Abraham episode in, in greater detail. It's it's very fascinating. But the idea is just that they assumed that like one hieroglyph of Egyptian might be covering one sentence or, or a whole entire paragraph of English text. And so if you have that mindset, you could easily understand that you could carry around the gold plates and write in Reformed Egyptian, and it would be very space-saving. But I think that's a misunderstanding, and that writing in Hebrew would have been just as lengthy text and, and not saved any space at all doing Reformed Egyptian. So for me, the combination of Reformed Egyptian and brass plates and metal plates is, is really significant to me. In fact, of everything that we're talking about today, I think the apologetic reasoning is is fairly sound for a lot of these things. It feels like a twist to some, and sometimes I don't like it because I feel like it's disrespecting the text a little bit, but I, I get it, I understand it. But these issues of brass plates, all the metal plates, reformed Egyptian, this was very significant in, in moving my belief in the Book of Mormon away from a historical view to the view that I have now. Another challenge to Book of Mormon historicity is the number of unlikely events in the Book of Mormon. We have three transatlantic voyages to the Book of Mormon, and I'm not considering those as unlikely events because the Book of Mormon is scripture, and it's it's a very special book, and we believe in miracles, and so I can, I'm fine with understanding that there are miracles in the Book of Mormon and things that we can't explain with science. I'm fine with that. But the unlikely events that seem like they should tie to physical evidence is what I'm talking about. We have battle scenes where we have over a million deaths, both with the Nephite and Lamanites and then with the Jaredites. Those would be like the, the biggest battle scenes by far in human history. And so maybe the numbers are fudged a little bit by imperfect narrators. I guess that's, that's fine. But each of these data points stack up when we're talking about scripture that is translated and dictated to Joseph Smith by the power of God. Another unlikely event are the, the destruction of all the cities at the time of Christ's death. We don't see any evidence in the old world of 
numerous cities destroyed. And some people criticize the Book of Mormon by saying it's depicting a Jesus Christ that's very vengeful and not loving like we expect Jesus Christ to be based in the New Testament. But I disagree. I think that Jesus Christ in the Book of Mormon is very loving and very inspiring when you look at the totality of all the Book of Mormon teachings of Jesus. And I like the Pete Enns explanation that we had from last episode where the Book of Mormon is what it looks like when we let God's children tell the story. And I can see that either from a ancient Nephi historical perspective or from a modern Joseph Smith perspective that it's a reasonable human worldview to think that the people who had persecuted Christians and who had disobeyed the commandments should be held responsible in some way for Christ's death. And, and it's showing forth in this destruction of cities. So I don't view that as God destroying the cities, but I view that as some human putting forward that story. And I guess that explanation works whether you think the Book of Mormon is historical or not. Now let's get into some very compelling evidences for the Book of Mormon historicity. And I think a lot of those are in the old world. Nahum, Lehi and his family go into the wilderness and they stop at a place and call it Nahum. And lo and behold, um, modern maps show that there's a place called Nahum, or, or NHM. We don't have the vowels, but it, it seems like a good hit. And that's very compelling. And then they travel further and come to a place that has very abundant animal life and, and food, and they call it Bountiful. And someone making up the Book of Mormon might not have pictured that area that they would have been traveling into Saudi Arabia as having a place like Bountiful. So that's kind of a compelling argument. Some of the others, I think your mileage varies to how compelling you view these as, but we have King, the King Benjamin coronation rites and the secession of kings. There have been people who have tied this into ancient Israelite customs and say that there's just some very important parallels that would have been that would have been difficult for someone to like Joseph Smith to know or also that they uh, correlate to Mesoamerica a secession of kings there's a lot of names that seem to be real interesting and bullseyes in term the book of mormon has over uh, so many names uh, over 200 i want to say and most of them, if not all of them, are very consistent with ancient Near Eastern languages. And so that's impressive. A lot of people see the olive tree horticulture in Jacob 5 as being very consistent and with olive tree horticulture that, that just your average person would not know. So, so how do I take these? I think I take them a couple different ways. I think most likely I view these as parallelomania. That's the idea that sometimes you have just complete coincidences when you have two unrelated things and, and it appears that one is borrowing or, or alluding to the other when in actuality it's just completely coincidental. So I think that happens in some of the critical arguments. Some of the critical arguments are of the Book of Mormon are sometimes based in parallelomania. And likewise, I think some of the defenses for Book of Mormon historicity are based in parallelomania. I think that's probably how I would describe these. Although I'm also very open, I'm not only defining my specific beliefs, but I'm also offering a paradigm 
for people to take in a lot of different ways. And I think it's very appropriate to view the Book of Mormon as being inspired. I believe it's inspired. To what degree, you know, God, you know, gave him some of these bullseyes and inspired him, I think that's very appropriate. So when Tad Collister says, how could Joseph have known this? And and Brian Hells uses that argument also. How could have Joseph dictated this? I'm very fine with an argument that says he couldn't. And it's inspired. And so God made it so that he could do it in a supernaturalistic process. For me personally, I believe that it, that it could be perfectly naturalistic. My view of God's involvement in the Book of Mormon is more like a nudge in the general direction. That's, that's how I would describe my view of inspiration. But I'm also fine with a view that takes it further into God having a more direct hand. I think that's intellectually viable. And to say that God wanted people to believe in this book, and so he didn't want it to be stupid and, and to be obviously wrong and for people to get hung up over over details like olive tree horticulture, because Jacob 5 is a beautiful theological discourse and teaches us about the grace of God and is inspiring. And maybe God, maybe it's not historical, but maybe God, when he sees Joseph Smith going for it, he wants to guide him in the right direction so that people don't get hung up on horticulture and just completely dismiss it. I think that's a completely valid view. As do, I think, a view of historicity is a completely valid view. I'm not here trying to talk anyone out of their beliefs. I'm simply expressing my beliefs and modeling how I view the Book of Mormon and how I view Scripture and, and how I've reconstructed my view of the Book of Mormon and testimony into something that's very important and valuable to me today. Let's go to the inspired non-historical model next. So Stephen Smoot wrote an article criticizing what he calls the inspired fiction view of the Book of Mormon. And I despise that term inspired fiction because I think right there it poisons the well and makes you disrespect the Book of Mormon right away if, if you're calling it inspired fiction. I don't use that word. Inspired allegory, inspired metaphor, inspired non-historical. I view it as scripture, even though I don't view it as history, but I, I wouldn't call it fiction. And let's go through Stephen Smoot's arguments. The first one is that Joseph couldn't do it. It's just too divine, too perfect for Joseph's capabilities. King Benjamin's address, Jacob's discourse on the atonement in 2 Nephi 9 are just too inspiring, spiritually complex for Joseph to come up with. And I agree with that to an extent, and I just explained how that I believe you can still believe in some inspiration there, even though it's not historical. But ultimately, a human did it, right? King Benjamin's a human. Jacob's a human. So I don't, I don't know if we can really say it's too much for a human to do if we're allowing for the fact that this is actually a translation of something a human wrote. Another argument is that it doesn't explain the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, uh, Brian Hills goes through this very detailed argument about the dictation and how impossible it would have been for Joseph Smith to do this in a dictation basis. And I think there's that's a very valid point that we got to recognize, and we're going to go through that in the Book of Mormon translation episode. Next one is what to do with the gold plates, and we'll also talk about that in the translation episode. Then there's the argument that we need to preserve Joseph's integrity or the restoration will fail. Joseph said 
that it was an historical record. He said that he saw the angel Moroni. He said there were actual ancient gold plates. And so if either he is deluded and it wasn't that way, and he thought it was that way, or if he was fraudulent and that he knew it wasn't that way, but he told us that it was, if he's either deluded or he's fraudulent, then that causes the whole restoration to fail. I recognize that as a strong argument and that it would be a lot cleaner restoration story if there were no issues at all for these questions about, is this a pious fraud or did Joseph think he was doing something that he wasn't? But I think that when we get to the Book of Abraham episode, we're going to show that there's something like that going on with that. And with polygamy, I think there was also something going on like that. And so I understand that it's important to view Joseph that way, and it preserves a really clean view of our history and our, and our origination. But I don't think we need to go there. I don't think we need to be binary all true, all false. I think we have something very beautiful. We have a great religion, and we don't need to put everything at stake over this, I call it whitewashed and naive view of history. But I think if you break it all down, that's what it is. There are some warts in this history. And if we take a strong stance that it's all true, all false, black and white, I think that's going to really set us up for failure. And then another argument he makes is that historicity of the Book of Mormon is necessary for its core message. Its core message for a lot of people is not so much its teachings or what it's telling us to do, but its actual existence. And that its actual existence proves that there's a resurrected Savior. It proves that angels speak to prophets, and it proves that, that Joseph Smith is leading the restoration. And the text of the Book of Mormon in terms of when we read it and what it does in our hearts and transforms us is secondary. And I agree that that's also a very powerful part of how the Book of Mormon has been received and still is being received by very many people. And I sort of wish I could still believe that way. I wish that I had that certainty in my life and that I knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that all these things were true, true in a very absolute and certain way. Honestly, I wish I could still believe that. And so I understand that that's very important for many people, but for some people, they just can't believe that anymore. And for us, it's still a very powerful and very important book. And, and we recognize its spiritual power and its transformation of people, bringing them to Christ. And it's through the reading and the spirit and the lived experience and the interaction with the stories and the doctrine and the spirit that comes to you while you read the text, that's the power for me right now. And I understand that's a little bit different power to, than someone who takes it literally and historically and absolutely true. And I recognize that's an important point, Stephen Smoot. But I would just like to ask you and other people, is it okay that we view it this other way because we think that it's still important for us? Then my last point on this critique of Stephen Smoot's article is that if you go back 100 years, you'll find Christians using his exact same arguments, probably point by point by point, 
talking about creation versus evolution or Noah's flood and warning all these Christians and their newfangled liberal interpretations that, that they're losing the entire power of the Christian or Jewish faith if they move to a less literal and more metaphorical view of the scriptures. And so, yes, I understand. I understand why you want to make that point, but I don't think if we want our religion to remain viable and sustainable into the future that that we make that point too hard. I think we need to allow for for multiple views of, of the Book of Mormon and of our scripture. So in my faith crisis, Book of Mormon historicity was probably the last domino to fall. I love the Book of Mormon, and I resisted this a lot. But through my reconstruction, I've learned to appreciate the Book of Mormon in a, in a little bit different view, a little bit different lens, but recognize its spiritual and transformative power as much as ever, maybe more than ever. Let me share a few of those thoughts with you as kind of my testimony of the Book of Mormon. I love Nephi's can-do spirit. I will go and do the things the Lord commands. I want to be like Nephi. He's told to build a boat, and he doesn't whine and complain. He just says, show me where the ore is, and I'll go and make tools and, and get on with it. I love the Jaredite story of the brother of Jared taking the stones, and he he has a problem, and he goes to the Lord, and the Lord wants him to kind of come up with a creative solution himself. And what a great story for a faith community to model for ourselves how we're going to go about life when we have challenges and to use our creativity and the faith in the Lord, combine those two to make miracles in our lives and to, to achieve difficult things. Beautiful message. I love the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, the Book of Mormon. You look at it and you feel like it could be obsessed about war. But it's actually anti-war. And the anti-Lephi-Nehi's, they know they have this temptation for war, and they're going to bury their weapons. And what a good message it is for us if we've got things in our life that we know are temptations, and, and we just don't even want to go there, to bury those so they don't even come into our recognition on a daily basis. I've seen a lot of people criticize the Book of Mormon's prosperity gospel message of if you obey the commandments, then you will prosper in the land. But I actually really like that message because I think it's true and I think it reflects reality. Okay, no, it doesn't mean if I obey the commandments, I'm going to get rich. Or if I'm poor, then it happens to be a reflection of how bad I am of keeping the commandments. Don't get that literal. But generally, if you do the right thing, if you wake up on time, get out of bed, take care of yourself, go to your job on time, perform your duties, obey the rules, obey the commandments, you are going to prosper more than the average person. Just put in the basic time in your school, try to get good grades, put in basic dedication to your work, you're going to get ahead. And so I don't mind the Book of Mormon's prosperity gospel at all. I think it reflects reality. I love Lehi's dream. I love that there's these different groups of people. There's the people that go to the fruit, take it, and um, love it. There's people that go to the fruit and are ashamed of it. There's people who lose their way. There's people who are criticizing and mocking. And rather than just kind of viewing us as the good guys in the story, let's put ourselves in each one of these 
situations and see what aspects of our behaviors, how are we acting like the people in the great and spacious building in, in this aspect of our lives? How are we acting like the people who take the fruit and act ashamed in this aspect of our lives? And I think if we look at the scriptures the way Nephi wants us to, liken them to ourselves, they open up so many messages and direction and instructions that we need to follow that will help us in our life. The covenant that the people make at the waters of baptism to mourn with those who mourn and comfort those who comfort, I think is one of the most inspiring messages of all of Scripture, including the Bible. I love that message in Mosiah where the Lamanites have taken the, the Nephites into servitude and they're harassing them and making their lives so difficult. And the Nephites are praying to be released from this bondage. And this verse is so beautiful, the Lord's answer to the Nephites' prayers. And it came to pass that the voice of the Lord came to them in their afflictions. This is Mosiah 24, 13, 14, and 15. Came to them in their afflictions, saying, Lift up your heads and be of good comfort, for I know of the covenant which ye have made unto me, and I will covenant with my people and deliver them out of bondage. So I will deliver you out of bondage. That's the promise. Now, I can't say when. It might not be today, but I will eventually deliver you out of bondage. But in the meantime, here's what I'm going to do. Verse 14. I will also ease the burdens which are put upon your shoulders, that even you cannot feel them upon your backs, even while you are in bondage. And this will I do that ye may stand as witnesses for me hereafter, and that ye may know of a surety that I, the Lord God, do visit my people in their afflictions. Now it came to pass that the burdens which were laid upon Alma and his brethren were made light. Yea, the Lord did strengthen them that they could bear up their burdens with ease, and they did submit cheerfully and with patience to all the will of the Lord. Oh, that's so touching. Another one of those great Buddhist messages that we want the suffering lifted, we want the affliction lifted, but so often the the counsel is to be in the moment and endure our suffering and it will pass, but also that when we have faith in the Lord, those those burdens feel lighter. That is true Christian discipleship to me, is that we're in the world and we have suffering and we have burdens, but when you partner with Christ, those burdens become lighter. I love that interaction between Pahoran and Moroni, where, where Captain Moroni just blasts Pahoran for not sending him supplies, and, and he just rips him. And Pahoran doesn't escalate and, and come back with more venom. He comes back in total humility. And what an example that is for us, for conflict resolution and for situations where we're working with someone on the same team, like in a business management situation, and, and we have to work with them. They're not our enemy, but maybe they're treating us like an enemy in this situation, but we have to work with them and negotiate and, and resolve conflict. And Porin just models that perfectly. I just listened to this Maxwell Institute podcast episode with Kylie Turley talking about Alma and, and his verse where he says, Oh, that I were an angel. And she ties that back to the Ammonihah story where Alma is just lamenting about this horrible, tragic story in Ammonihah. She's kind of reading this into it. It doesn't say it explicitly, but she's wondering if this is maybe what Alma is thinking about. This horribly tragic story where the people in Ammonihah, the women and children, were burned 
with their scriptures in Ammonihah. And Alma might have felt responsible in some way for how this situation escalated and all these people were killed. And not that it was his fault, but that he might have felt that way. And just that lament, oh, that I were an angel. And when we connect, the, the Book of Mormon is so complex and it's so beautiful. And there's so many of these Easter eggs that are just there for the finding when we take the text seriously and we connect the dots between these stories and, and different characters. There's so much meaning and so much complexity. I love the Book of Mormon. You all have your own stories. There's dozens and dozens of these stories, and and this is just a handful of them. And that's what's great about having a scripture and about having a faith community where we can all come up with these our own ideas and bounce them off each other and share insights and and we feel the Holy Ghost and the the Holy Ghost is manifesting the Spirit of God in our lives as we do this and. We shouldn't be ashamed of the Book of Mormon. It stacks up to the Bible in every way as being beautiful scripture that is valid, that helps us engage with God and engage with the Holy Ghost and engage with each other in our faith community. I love the Book of Mormon, and I think that's what we wanted to accomplish today. Thank you for listening to the end, and please join us next time. Thanks.